Bible study now, and we're going to be back in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we'll read verses 67 through 80. 67 through 80. And in Luke 1, we have these two uh, prophecies or songs, uh, both by Mary and then by Zechariah later. Zacharias being the father of John the Baptist. And in both of them, they understand the significance of, of what God is doing in the world and in human history at this time. Uh, that this is the fulfillment and the culmination of all of these promises and predictions that were made in the Old Testament, given to the prophets and to the fathers, that these things that they spoke of and prophesied that they had been waiting for were now being completed or fulfilled during their generation, during their time, and then that these two families played pivotal roles in the unfolding of this revelation. We read earlier today about Mary and her understanding of the Christ and she being the mother of the Lord, bringing him into the world and that he would be her salvation. But then in the case of Zacharias and Elizabeth, John the Baptist being the forerunner of the Christ who would go and prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. That all of these things were very significant events uh, in human history. The most significant events uh, in the history of the world, the coming of Christ into the world. So let's read then Luke chapter 1, 67 to 80. It says, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearing to Israel. Here in this prophecy of Zacharias, which tells us there in verse 67 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he said these things. So these words are not his own words, but these are the words of the Holy Spirit through the prophecy of Zacharias and his understanding of what it is that God is doing during his own day and the significance of this child, his own son, uh, and his role in these events that are unfolding. He begins there in verse 66 by saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Here he is blessing God because of what it is that God is doing. Now in this case, the inferior is blessing the superior. In the case of what we've been reading in Hebrews chapter 7, when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, there it was proof or evidence of the superiority of Melchizedek over Abraham because he said that it is without dispute that the superior blesses the inferior or the inferior is blessed by the superior. 
And this is true in terms of rank, in terms of the communicating of some good gift unto a person. That the superior, the one who has the higher rank, the higher position, is the one by which God conveys his blessings to others. So the father blesses the children. The minister blesses the church. In this case, Melchizedek blessed Abraham because he was superior. And certainly in terms of the receiving a blessing, all true blessing begins with God and comes down from him. However, when we see people blessing God, they're not communicating good gifts to God, but it's simply a declaration of who he is. It is a declaration of praise to God. And this is the way that Zacharias means it here. He's blessing God because he's declaring his praise, his goodness. He's extolling God because of his works that he has brought into the world, the excellencies of God. And he is blessing God because... God has done certain things, right? We understand that we praise God not only for who he is, his attributes that are revealed uh, in the scriptures concerning God, but we know God primarily through his works, what it is that God does. He reveals his attributes, he reveals his nature to us through his mighty deeds, through the works that he has accomplished, And those two great works are creation and redemption. And here he is speaking of redemption, what God has done. Notice there in verse 68 and 69, he says, He has visited us. He has accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Here, Zacharias recognizes that this salvation is a one-way street. That God is the one who is doing it. It has been brought about by God, right? Salvation is not uh, something that we do alongside God. Something that God does his part and then we do our part and together God and man are able to bring about the accomplishment of salvation and redemption. But rather it is a work of God. God is the one who does it. He is the one who brings it about. He visited us. We did not go to heaven and visit God, but rather we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were alienated from God. We were enemies of God, without God. We were not seeking God. We were not looking for God. We had no understanding or knowledge of him. But he, in his kindness, has visited us. He has come down to us and reestablished this relationship between God and man. He accomplished redemption. God did it without any assistance from us. He did not need us to bring it about or to do a part that he was unable to do by himself. But salvation from start to finish belongs to who? It is all a work of God. He raised up the horn of salvation from the house of David. God is the one who has done all of these things. And we know that the birth of Christ into the world, his conception was by the Holy Spirit. It was without the aid or assistance of any man, but it was done by the miracle of God. God is the one who foretold these things. He is the one who gave these promises to the fathers. And then God is the one who accomplished all of it without the help of any man, without the aid or assistance of anyone. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this should be what we understand and what we know about our own salvation, that it began with God and he is the one that brought it about and he is the one that will bring it to completion. And while it is true that God does work in us and through us and we do uh, have to believe, we must repent, but even those graces, even those things are produced in us by the will of God. 
by the power of God, by the goodness of God. So whatever there is in terms of uh, what we're called to do, even those things we're unable to do on our own without the power of God. God is the one who has brought about our salvation. It says in Revelation chapter 7, verse 10. In Revelation chapter 7 and verse 10, It says, And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Salvation to our God. In heaven, when we are there for all eternity, we will always say, and we will always recognize and understand, that salvation belongs to our God. He is the one who has brought it about. He is the one who has visited us. He has accomplished it. He has raised up the horn of salvation. And all of this salvation is accomplished in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the horn of God's salvation. And salvation can be found in no one else, only in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here he mentions specifically that he is from the house of David. He understands the significance of David, the covenant that God made with him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and that the Messiah or the Christ would be one of his descendants. And certainly, Zacharias is aware of these things. He knows of the lineage of Joseph and Mary, and that the Christ that is coming into the world is the fulfillment of these things. And in terms of his human nature, the Christ is descended from David. Then verse 70. He says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, from of old, right? What God is doing in the person of Christ and in the bringing of John the Baptist into the world, right? All of this was spoken of by the mouth of the holy prophets of old. For many years, they had been speaking of these things. Through the prophets, God spoke in many portions and in many ways. Over the course of many years, he was prophesying and predicting the coming of Christ, what he would do when he came into the world. And Zacharias understands that all of the Old Testament scriptures, they all hang upon Christ, that he is the fulfillment of everything that God had promised to the fathers, and that there is no promise of God that is not found its fulfillment in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. This is what is repeated in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 3, for example, in many places in the book of Acts, you have the apostles stressing over and over again, especially again when they're speaking to the Jews, that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God made to the fathers, that all the prophets spoke of him And they spoke of these days. They spoke of the coming of the righteous one that they put to death. Acts 3, 17 says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. 
To whom to him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all of the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. There he speaks about the Old Testament, about the prophets that God announced beforehand by the mouth of all of his prophets that the Christ would suffer. And that Moses, the chief of the prophets, he also spoke of these days. And then also all of the prophets from Samuel and his successors onward, they announced these days as well. Well, Zacharias understands these things, that God has announced these things through the prophets of old, and he is now fulfilling them in the person of Jesus Christ and what God is doing in the world at this time. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. What God is doing is to bring about salvation from our enemies and salvation from the hand of all who hate us. This is what we need. We need deliverance. We need salvation. We need to be rescued and redeemed from our enemies and those who hate us. And who is the chief enemy of the people of God? Who is the one who hates God's people more than anyone else? It is the devil who is the accuser of the brethren. And the devil holds men in fear of death because of sin. Sin, death, Satan. These are the great enemies that exist against the people of God. And these are those enemies that we need to be delivered from. We need salvation from these spiritual enemies that wage war against our soul. We need salvation from the hand of these that hate us that will lead to our eternal ruin and destruction. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that our fight is not against flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. There our struggle, this spiritual struggle against these enemies is not flesh and blood, not merely flesh and blood, but it is against these spiritual forces of darkness that are at work in heavenly places. And then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, there he refers to death as an enemy that needs to be destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death is the enemy that must be abolished. And it is Christ's enemy because it is our enemy, right? We are his people, we are his body, and he must have supremacy in his body. If he is going to raise up his body to eternal life, 
then there must be deliverance from these enemies, salvation from sin, from death, and from Satan. And here, Zacharias understands that this Christ who is coming into the world, he will be the source of salvation, the one who will deliver us from all of our enemies. 72 says, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. Here, it is not only mercy for those in the present, but also mercy toward the fathers. God made promises to the fathers. He made covenants with them. He interposed it with an oath to Abraham. And if God does not fulfill that oath in that word, then his mercy to Abraham is null and void then it is of no avail if there is not the fulfillment and the accomplishment of the promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And who is the realization of that promise? The oath is fulfilled in the birth of the seed, the seed of Abraham, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the accomplishment of this oath sworn to Abraham. He is the source, the means by which God blesses the nations through Abraham, through the coming of Christ into the world. Also, it is necessary for Christ to come into the world because we know that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were all sinners who had a sin nature. Yet God received them into his presence. God counted Abraham as his friend. He counted them as believers. He justified them on what basis? Through who? Only through our Lord Jesus Christ. God gave them mercy before Christ actually came into the world on the basis of what Christ would do. So it's necessary for Christ to come and to die on the cross for their sins because God has given them mercy and God has received them into his fellowship on the basis of what Christ would do. Otherwise, God could not do that with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He could not call Abraham his friend without there being atonement for the sins of Abraham. But Christ had not come into the world during the time of Abraham. But God received him on the basis of the promise the oath that he swore that he would do it. He would do it and he would bring it about. So they need these things for their own mercy as well, for their own salvation. Romans chapter 3, 25 and 26. Romans 3, 25 says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God passed over the sins previously committed. The sins of Abraham, the sins of Isaac, the sins of Jacob, the sins of Moses, the sins of Aaron, the sins of David. Christ had not died on the cross at that time in history. Yet God passed over their sins. He received them into his family, they received the benefits of the death and resurrection of Christ before they were actually accomplished. And that God received them into his friendship, into his family, and into the blessings of salvation necessitated then that at God's appointed time, the Christ would come into the world and that he would die on the cross for Abraham's sins 
for Isaac's sins, for Jacob and for Moses and for Aaron and for all of the Old Testament saints. He must die for all of their sins, and that is the basis of God receiving them into his fellowship. And this was the oath that he made to Abraham, that he would do it and that it would not fail. Right? God interposed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have this anchor for our soul. And that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 74 and 75. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Here, God is granting this to us. To grant is to gift. It is a gift. It is something that God grants or God gives freely. It is not something that we earn or something that we work for. That is a reward that is given to us because of our works of righteousness. Salvation is a grant or it is a gift that is given to us by God. And what does God grant to us? That when we are rescued from the hands of our enemies, then we are able to serve God without fear. When we are delivered from sin and from death, the result of our justification and of our salvation and of our new standing before God on the basis of Christ is that we now are able to serve God without fear. Before, we cannot serve God without fear. In the sinful state, we cannot serve God without fear. One, we don't want to serve God because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then if a sinner does draw near to God, what will happen to him? He will be consumed, right? Our God is a consuming fire. And in our natural state, we are stubble. And when stubble meets consuming fire, what happens to stubble? The stubble is completely consumed and destroyed. And this is why men have fear or terror of the retribution of God when they're in the sinful state. But here, when there is the knowledge of salvation, the knowledge that our sins have been forgiven, that all of them have been atoned by the blood of Christ, now we are able to draw near to God. We are able to come and serve God and worship God without fear of God consuming us and destroying us. Because we know now that God receives us into his fellowship, into his presence, not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of who? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why there is no fear in Christ. When we draw near to God through Christ, we know that God will receive us because if he rejects us, who does he have to reject? He has to reject his own son, Jesus Christ. And does Christ ever have fear of drawing near to his father? No, he doesn't have that fear. So we don't have that fear. Now, this fear that he's speaking of here is the fear of condemnation, right? The fear that is not known by the believer, right? We don't have fear of God in this way. He's not talking about the righteous fear that Mary spoke of in earlier in chapter one, right? That uh, is true of all of those who receive mercy, those who fear God, who have that reverential awe of God. This is the fear of condemnation, the fear of coming under final condemnation on the day of judgment because of our sins. We don't have that fear if we are in Christ because we know 
that all of our sins have been forgiven and that God is receiving us into his presence and into his fellowship, not on the basis of the law and of our own deeds of righteousness, but on the basis of Christ, his perfect righteousness, his death that has taken away our sins and his perfect life accredited to our account. And the result is that we are able now to serve God without fear because we are made holy and righteous in his sight. Only those who are holy and righteous can draw near to God. And again, this is not true of us in our natural state, nor is it even true of us in the Christian state perfectly in terms of our experience. But in terms of our standing before God, we are perfectly righteous in Christ. We are the holiness of God in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the basis for our confidence in of our drawing near to God. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, there the apostle says, Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, says, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Right? When we are standing before God on the righteousness that is derived from the law, then we have fear because we know because of the knowledge of our sin. Our conscience is guilty. It's not clean. And the knowledge of our sin terrorizes us that we are going to be condemned and judged by God. And that's true. That will happen. But now, in Christ, we're not standing before him based upon our righteousness that is derived from the law. Now we're standing before him based upon the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. His perfect righteousness that we have received freely by the gift of faith. And when that is our standing before God, then we're able to serve God without fear because we have been rescued from sin and from death and Satan. Then verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Here now, Zacharias is speaking of John and his unique role in what is going to take place. John is the one who would be the prophet of God who would go before the Lord and prepare the way for the coming of Christ. This was John's unique role given to him. One crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord by preaching to them the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was John's message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he was calling them to do such things in order that the people might be prepared and ready for their Lord, for their Christ, to come and meet them. Because in the sinful state, we're not ready to meet Christ. We're not ready to be with the Lord. There must be the repentance of sins. And this is why John was sent in order to do these things. Raised up by God with this unique call to be the forerunner of the Christ, 
to preach a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins so that the hearts of the people might be ready and prepared to receive their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this was true, not of all of them, but of some of them, right? All of the disciples of Jesus were already exposed to the gospel through the preaching of John the Baptist before Jesus even came onto the scene. And many of them were already following John, and John is the one that told them to go to Christ, right? He was the one preparing the way in making the people fit for the receiving of the Lord. Verse 77 says, To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. This is what John was going to do. Give people knowledge of salvation by forgiveness of sins. This is what we need to have. We need to know that our sins are forgiven how it is that our sins can be forgiven, and how it is that we can know that we are children of God, that we have this assurance that our sins have been wiped away. That is the knowledge that we need, the forgiveness of sins. We must be convinced of this, that full atonement has been made for us by Jesus Christ, and that I am accepted by God, that I am dearly loved by God, that he is my heavenly father and that there is nothing that can separate me from his love that I have in Jesus Christ. This is what we need to know and understand. That's why Peter says we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul, he's praying for the church that they might know the depths of the love of God. And where is God's love to us most preeminently seen? in that he sent his son into the world that we might live through him. That is where the love of God is seen to us in the forgiveness of sins. And this is what we need to know about. This is what we need to be talking about all of the time, right? When we gather together, whether it's the preaching and teaching of the word of God, when it's our private conversations together, we need to be talking about the substance of the gospel. And the gospel has to do with the knowledge of our sin and how our sins can be forgiven through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what are the benefits of the forgiveness of sin? Namely, that the love of God is ours and that it can never be taken away from us. And that gives us all the things that we talked about this morning in our catechism question. Joy in the Lord, assurance of salvation, an increase of grace, perseverance until the end, fellowship with the saints. All of these things are increased in us as we come to a fuller understanding of the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. This is what John is sent to do. This is what Christ is sent to do as well, to give the people of God knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. And also it's a reminder that when we're talking about salvation, we're not talking about uh, overcoming poverty, social injustice, right? All the things that people want to make the gospel about today. The gospel, salvation, must deal primarily with sin, right? That is what it needs to touch. And this is what we need to be teaching people that they are indeed sinners before God and that they are under the judgment of God, but that there is the way of escape through Jesus Christ our Lord, that their sins can be forgiven, can be washed away through the blood of Christ. Then verses 78 and 79. Oh, wait, one other passage. Hebrews chapter 10. Sorry, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 
19 to 25. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There he talks about drawing near with this sincere heart in full assurance of faith, fully assured that I have a right to draw near to God because my heart has been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And what is it that God sprinkles us with that cleanses, cleanses our conscience? It is the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ cleanses us of all of our iniquities. Then 78 and 79. It says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Right? It is the tender mercy of our God which causes this knowledge to shine upon us. The sun rises upon us. We sit in darkness, right? We sit in the shadow of death. In our sinful state, we are ignorant of the things of God. We are in darkness. We are in confusion. We do not know the way of peace. We do not know God. We don't know how to be reconciled to God. We don't seek God. We don't worship God. This is what men are in their natural state. They are in complete ignorance and complete darkness. And yet God, because of his tender mercy, because God is so merciful and kind, he sends to men who are dead in their sins and who are living in ignorance and darkness, he sends the light of the gospel to them and it shines upon them and it guides our feet into the way of peace. Doesn't the gospel teach us how we who are at war with God can have peace with God? This is what the gospel is teaching us. And God sends that gospel into the world to those who are in darkness to shine light upon them and to guide their feet into the way of peace. So that now, instead of being at war with God, we can have peace with God. Instead of being enemies with God, we can be his dearly beloved children through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And has God not caused this light to shine upon us? We have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know of the knowledge of salvation. We know of the need of the forgiveness of sins. But that light will only be beneficial to us if we believe it, right? If we walk according to it, right? Because there are those that the light shines upon them, and yet they reject the light, and they want nothing to do with the light because they love the darkness because their deeds are evil. But may that not be true of you and me. <clears throat> may we be children of light, and may that be manifested and seen in that we come to the light, and we want to know the light, and we want to walk according to the light, and we want to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is my hope and my prayer for each and every one of you. I hope in my prayer for my family and for myself as well is that this would be true of us. So then let us go from here and walk in the light 
of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and Lord, how it reveals to us, Lord, so clearly this knowledge of salvation that we are in so desperate need of. Lord, we, we know that we are dead in our sins and our natural state. Lord, we are in darkness. We are without you, without hope. And that if you left us to our own devices, Lord, everyone here, Lord, we would all be worshiping some false god that was created by our ancestors, or we would be inventing new gods of our own that we might serve and worship them. But we know without any doubt that there's not a single person here apart from your grace and mercy, apart from your light, who would have ever worshipped you, who would have ever come to you and been reconciled to you through Jesus Christ on our own effort. Lord, these things are too great for us. Lord, this wisdom is in heaven above, and Lord, we have no access to it on our own. But Lord, we thank you that you are the one who has come down to us. Lord, you have visited your people. Lord, you have accomplished salvation for us. Lord, you have raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. You sent Jesus into the world to be born, Lord, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins and to be raised for our justification. And now you have raised him up to the place of highest honor, to sit at your right hand and to serve as the mediator, the great high priest over the household of God. And Lord, we confess that it is only through him, only through faith in him, that we can be made righteous in your sight. Lord, it is only on the basis of his person and his work that we can serve you without fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. Lord, we have an eternal home. Lord, an eternal future of blessedness, all because of what Christ has done for us. And so we confess today that salvation belongs to you and to you alone. And Lord, we give to you all the praise and glory for what you have done in us. Lord, we pray that this knowledge would go with us and that we would cherish it. Lord, that it would constantly be upon our mind and our thoughts. Lord, that we would be worshiping you at all times, thanking you and praising you for what you have done for us in Christ. Also, Lord, that it might cause us to, to live a godly life, Lord, to walk with you in fear and, Lord, and in godliness, Lord, to hate sin and to seek to live a life that is pleasing to you. But as well, Lord, we pray that this knowledge would not be something that we contain within ourselves, but that, Lord, we would speak often, Lord, to those who are still in darkness, Lord, in our own homes, to our children, but also to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors, Lord, to anyone that we can gain an audience with. Lord, we pray that you might use us to be light to them, Lord, to guide their feet into the way of peace. So, Lord, we pray that you would do these things and that, Lord, you might help us to grow more and more in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Lord, be with us as we go here from here today. Lord, give us safety as we travel home. Lord, bless us uh, this upcoming week. Lord, bless our times uh, together with our families. Lord, may they be times of glory and honor to you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.